You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hi everyone and welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Maya and I'm a second year UBC medical student. Today's episode was written, recorded, and edited from my home, which is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. And I'm grateful to have lived, learned, and worked on these lands for many years. Thanks for tuning in to the Metamorphosis podcast. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, you're listening to the Metamorphosis Podcast, a podcast designed to help medical students navigate their careers. My name is Maya, and on today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Abhi Chirikupali, who is a second-year resident in ENT at UBC. So, Dr. Chirikupali, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Maya. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming to talk to us today. So, could you start off by introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey to ENT? Uh, sure, yeah. So I am a second year ENT resident here at UBC. Um, I am kind of born and raised in Vancouver. I did my undergrad here in kinesiology at UBC and I uh, did my med school here as well. My journey to ENT is uh, a, a little bit of a long convoluted one, but um, I started medical school thinking that I wanted to do orthopedics. Um, for me, doing a background of kin in undergrad, it seemed like a natural fit. Uh, I really liked sports medicine and the idea of being like the orthopod for like the Vancouver Canucks was like a very appealing job opportunity for me. Um, So that's kind of where I started. Um, But then over the course of medical school, I started to get more interested in actual like medicine, medicine. And so I started to think about things like internal medicine or neurology, and I was kind of all over the place. Eventually, I kind of was finding a way and, and somebody recommended vascular surgery where it was kind of a mix of surgical stuff as well as medical stuff. Um, and when I did my clerkship rotation, I rotated on vascular surgery and I, I really enjoyed it, but I think it was just, it wasn't what I was looking for. It was a little bit more morbid, I guess, than I expected. Granted, it was also like the first time being in a hospital. So I was kind of a little bit lost. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Um, And one of my friends uh, recommended that I take a plastic surgery uh, rotation in third year as part of those two subspecialty electives you get to take because it was related to vascular surgery. Um, And when I was on plastics, I actually enjoyed it a lot. I think there was a lot of variability in what they did. Um, I really enjoyed the technical and creative aspect of the field. Um, You tend to operate almost all over the body. Um, And I just had a really positive experience from the group here. And so they encouraged me to apply to plastics. And uh, I did that in fourth year. Unfortunately, I went unmatched that year. So then I took the year off to do a master's. Um, But during that year off, I actually also had the opportunity to kind of reflect on what was important to me. Um, Coming to the end of fourth year, I I was definitely burnt out. And I don't think I was aware of it until I had a second to just take a breath. Um, You know, I lost a lot of weight. I wasn't exercising anymore. I wasn't eating properly. I was constantly sleep deprived. um, And any of the hobbies that I enjoyed doing prior to medical school, I'd almost lost. Mm -hmm. I like stopped doing them. 
And so uh, I kind of reflected on like, what did I want my life to look like in the future? And if it was going to be like this for another 15, 20 years, whatever it is, uh, I didn't think I could do that. Um, and so I was thinking about, you know, I have to match obviously, and, and also what, what would fit that kind of quota and family medicine was obviously something that was very appealing. Um, I'd worked with one of the family physicians in Invermere, BC on my rural elective in third year, and I really enjoyed it to this day. I think he's still one of the smartest doctors I've ever worked with. Um, he did absolutely everything. He was so technically capable and so knowledgeable. Um, and I learned a ton when I was with him. And so during that year off, I got to go back and spend some time with him. And it was kind of nice because now it's towards the end of medical school. So I actually had some knowledge to offer. Um, and we got to do like we're putting in central lines and intubating in the emergency department. We are doing minor procedures. We're doing pap smears. We're seeing patients in addictions clinic. Like we just did absolutely everything. Um, and, uh, you know, we were out of clinic by three o'clock and I was like, golfing on the on the driving range like that afternoon or going on the lake so I was like this is kind of nice so I ended up applying to family as well um, and I matched family here however during that year uh, within a couple months going into it um, I just found that there was something missing anytime I was on a surgical rotation um, there was a little bit of a spark that came back and whenever I would be working with the staff at uh, Surrey uh, in the surgical department, they would basically be like, you should, you should transfer to surgery. It was kind of like pouring salt on the wound a little bit, um, but I started to just think about it. And then kind of coincidentally, I was on an OB rotation and I was working with a staff that I really liked. And uh, she asked me if I wanted to do obstetrics like down the road, like as family obstetrics. And I kind of told her I was like thinking of maybe transferring to surgery, but I'm just, I don't know if it's possible. I'm just kind of working it out. And um, she mentioned that her twin brother was an ENT surgeon here at St. Paul's. And so I just asked her, I'd like, as I kind of explained, I've never done ENT. Like for us, I think now they have ENT in medical school, but like for us, we didn't have any clinical skills, nothing. Like if you didn't go out of your way to find it, you would never find it. And so I didn't even know what ENT really was, but... I was kind of like, I just need to give this a shot because what are the chances? And I ended up talking to him. He connected me with the program director and they invited me for an elective. And so I was quite nervous coming into it because I was like, I don't know what this field is. I don't know what they do. I don't know what the surgeries are. I don't know if I'll like it, but it's surgical. So I just went in with an open mind. And I think more than anything, what really sold me on this specialty, specifically this program, was that everybody was super welcoming. Like I walked in as a nobody. I'm a family medicine resident. Nobody's ever met me before. They have no idea who I am. But first off, like the residents were all super welcoming. I remember my senior calling me and like walking me through what his expectations were of me um, and guiding me through like the day-to-day -day expectations of what I would do on the rotation. Um, I remember residents that weren't even at the site I was at text me and be like, hey, I heard you're here. Like. Uh, hope it goes well like feel free to message me if you have any questions um, and even the staff like uh, people like I would show up and introduce myself as I'm sure all of you medical students do whenever you show up onto your new rotation and uh, the staff were like excited to have me around and it felt like I was already one of their junior residents and I think that was a feeling that I'd missed in family medicine it was a feeling that I was looking for when I was applying to a surgical subspecialty the first time around and then on top of that, 
all the clinical stuff kind of continued to sell the field. I realized that for me, plastic surgery was a great field and I still think it is, but it's a very technical field. Um, the medicine is somewhat limited in it. And as I mentioned, I was interested in the medicine. And I think the interesting thing about ENT is the fact that there is no medical counterpart. So every other surgical field for the most part has a medical counterpart. So neurosurgery has neurology, cardiothoracics has cardiology, um, general surgery has GI, but there is no medical counterpart for ENT. So we are both the medical and surgical management, everything in the head and neck, which seems like it's not a lot, but it is a lot. Um, and I liked that aspect of it where I get to decide whether I want to operate on this patient without somebody else telling me I should. And I have a whole slew of medical therapies I can offer them before I think like, okay, this patient probably needs surgery. And so that kind of balance of the outpatient clinical medicine, as well as the, you know, inpatient surgical management, I liked that balance. It was nice because you have patients with, you know, chronic disease that you end up following. I think surgical subspecialties get a negative rep where they just kind of say that, you know, a patient shows up, you operate on them, then you kick them out the door. But, you know, we have staff here that have known these patients for like years and years and years. And it's kind of the same vibe of family that I enjoyed. And, um, I think in general, like that was something that was really kind of exciting to me was the fact that you could do that. And I think on top of that, I realized in family medicine, I think one of our staff actually published a paper about this where 30% of all family medicine visits are ENT related. And the interesting thing is I, I did see that when I was in clinic, you see these patients and, and it may seem trivial compared to, you know, somebody that has like colon cancer or whatever it is, but if somebody can't breathe, they can't smell, they can't taste very well, they can't hear very well, like that's extremely detrimental to your quality of life. And as much as it may not be like life-saving, and, and some of them are, but like some of these things are life, not life-saving therapies, the senses that we control that we can alter to improve their quality of life is huge. It really changes what their life course can be. And if it's as simple as us doing sinus surgery to open their sinuses to let them to breathe or us putting in a cochlear implant to help them hear for the first time, it's pretty exciting stuff. And like to see somebody's reaction when the next time they've come up to you in clinic and they're like, I can smell for the first time in 25 years, feels really good. And so I thought that with all of those things together, this was definitely what I wanted to do. And then the cherry on top was over the course of all of this, I was very interested in medical innovation and global health. And ENT kind of marries the both, for both of them very well. Um, there's a lot of stuff in global health regarding like head and neck screening, uh, hearing screening, things like that. Um, and then from the medical innovation side, because we tend to operate in deep, dark holes, you need technology to help you to do that effectively and, and safely. And so it is a breeding ground for medical innovation compared to other fields where they tend not to require, you know, very, very innovative things. So I think with all of that, I, I like realized very coincidentally that this was kind of the field that I feel like I always would have ended up in, but I just took a winding path to get there. That's a really interesting and unique path. And it seems like you had a lot of reflection on the way. And you said earlier, you felt like a spark when you were back in surgical rotations and you felt like something was missing when you weren't in surgery. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that, what exactly you love about surgery. 
Um, I think there's multiple things. <laughs> That's our question to answer. Um, I, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about surgery is that you have a tangible outcome at the end of whatever you're doing. You know, if somebody comes in with head and neck cancer and I cut out the cancer, they don't have cancer anymore. Obviously more complicated than that, but like at basic terms. If somebody has a problem hearing and I put in a cochlear implant, they can hear afterwards. So there are like aspects to it where they are coming to you with a problem and you fix their problem for them and they leave with a better solution. And I think that, you know, medical specialties sometimes can be a little bit difficult because you, you know, somebody comes in with hypertension and you prescribe them Ramapril to help with their hypertension and then they don't take it or they don't have drug coverage for it or there's like a whole other bunch of issues and so then they still have hypertension. Mm -hmm. To me, like, I understand the logistics around that, but it was just some aspects of it were not as satisfying to me because I felt like I wasn't helping this patient. And no matter what I did, I couldn't help this patient. And, you know, I respect all the people that want to do internal medicine or family medicine or pediatrics or whatever it is that will take that extra step to do it. But I found that extremely challenging. And I think for myself, I realized I'd probably be taxed and burnt out by that throughout my career. And I think the other thing about surgery, which is very unique compared to medicine, is that when somebody is going to the OR, they are basically placing their entire faith in you as an individual that you will take care of them and serve them to the best of your ability to fix their problem. It's a huge responsibility, but it feels kind of great that you can take on that onus to be able to treat this patient. Like that patient is intubated, they're sedated, they have no recollection of what happened and they just wake up with a scar and they assume everything went well, but have no idea, right? And so I can imagine if I had to surgery, I would be like, man, I really hope things go well. Mm -hmm. And if you have the ability to like talk to the patient beforehand, then talk to them in the pre-op and then talk to them in the post-op, then see them for the next week or whatever it is that they're in hospital and, and con continue to counsel them. Like to me, it was a very therapeutic process because you really feel like you're providing the best care possible to someone that has their absolute faith in you that you will do that. And so I just enjoyed that responsibility. And it's something that I see in my staff where like, you know, I remember when I would, I first showed up for a clinic when I was doing my elective for ENT and I walked into the room to see a patient that was post-op for like a head and neck cancer resection. And the first words the patient said to me were like, oh, you're working with Dr. Prisman, you are so lucky. He is the best physician I've ever met. He changed my life. And I was like, wow, like that's really cool. Okay. I haven't heard that. I mean, granted, like obviously he's not the only physician that gets that accolade, but mm -hmm. it was great. It was like amazing for me. I was like, I want, I want to be like that. I want somebody to say that about me mm -hmm. 10, 15 years down the road, you know? So that for me was kind of that aspect of surgery that I just wasn't really getting from family medicine. Wow. Yeah, that's really amazing to hear. I think as a first year medical student, we've only really been in family practice and only been exposed to like a tiny bit of medicine. So it's really cool to hear your experiences in all the different areas of medicine and finally like settling in on surgery. Your journey is so fascinating to me and there's so much I would want to ask if we had hours. But I think the other thing I wanted to ask is, yeah, you mentioned during the process you you felt 
burnt out in medical school. And I was wondering in that process of burnout, if you would have any advice for medical students to perhaps reduce their burnout or any tips that you have? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think in general, medical school is tough. And I think that there's this culture in medicine still to this day that you have to sacrifice everything else in your life because you're becoming a doctor. And like, I still fall, fall, I still fall for that constantly in residency and I have to keep reminding myself of it. But it's one of those things that you, if you're conscious of it earlier on, then you will be more likely to avoid burnout in the future. And I think one of those things is the fact that I mentioned, like I had a lot of things like I was, I like play music and, and uh, like sports and, and working out. And like, these are things that I do to keep myself sane. And I just kind of let them go to the wayside because I was like, I need to study for this case. I need to read up on this textbook. I need to do this. I need to do that. And cause I need to be good. Um, which is fine. Like, I'm not saying that's wrong, but don't do it as the at the expense of what keeps you who you are. Mm-hmm. And I felt that like at the, you know, you have, I came back from electives after like four months of traveling the country. And I know that a lot of students don't have that opportunity now, but like, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I came back and I remember the first comment one of my friends said to me was like, you've lost a lot of weight. And I was like, oh, really? And then I, I checked my weight and I like lost 15 pounds over four weeks or four months, sorry. Um, and it was just because of that. I felt tired and I realized that I didn't feel like the same person I was beforehand. And so I think it's important for you to know what is it that you enjoy doing and what keeps you grounded and continue to do those things throughout medical school. Like make time for them, whether it's like three hours or 20 minutes, like just make time for it. If you, you know, get pimped and you missed one question, nobody really cares. I mean, I get pimped constantly and I don't know any of the answers. They're not kicking me out of a residency program, you know. Um, And I know medical students are always very scared, especially fourth years when, you know, they get pimped and they don't get the answer right. And they think, oh, no, now I'm not going to match here. I will tell you the medical students that come through like, yes, obviously, if you know a lot of stuff, that's great. But really, like at least as a resident, I look to who works hard and who is easy to work with. And that seems like it's so simple. And I remember residents telling me this when I was in medical school and I was like, that's way too basic. Like I don't trust you, but it is true. Like you're doing five years of residency to learn your subspecialty field. If you knew everything in one year of medical school, why would we train you for five years? It makes absolutely no sense. Like I can teach you medicine. I cannot teach you to work hard and have a good work ethic and be easy to work with. Those are soft skills that you have to have. And that is what makes you better than somebody else. There's obviously a lot of things that will kind of bolster that, but that's really the fundamental. So if that's the fundamental, there's no utility in you sacrificing your mental health for knowing that one pimping question. And I think that I forgot that in medical school. And now, even now in residency, I kind of forget it time to time. But it's, it's important to remind yourself that you're like, you know what? Normally, I'd want to work out for an hour, but I will like do like 20 minutes of yoga or go on a quick run or whatever it is, um, because that's how much time I have now. 
but that's enough for me to just reset. And I think that's important to not forget when you're going through medical education. Thank you for that. That's very reassuring to hear that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to not know and just to show up and do your best every day. I think that's really wonderful advice and gives me perspective as a first year student as to how to maybe manage going forward in clerkship in a few years. I guess to transition from all this life talk, I was wondering a little bit more about ENT because I think in medical school so far, at least there hasn't been very much exposure or talk to ENT. So I was just wondering if you could tell me about your specialty. Uh, Sure, yeah. So um, there is multiple subspecialties within ENT. So there's head and neck surgery, there's rhinology, there's otology, there's laryngology, and there's facial plastic surgery. Each one has kind of like an anatomic area as well as like a disease spectrum that they take care of. Head and neck surgery tends to operate like everywhere in the head and neck, and they will deal primarily with oncologic type issues. So head and neck cancers or masses in the neck or whatever it may be. So for example, one of the surgeries that we often do quite commonly uh, is like what we call free flap reconstruction, where we cut out a piece. So for example, if somebody has cancer in their mouth and it's extending into their mandible or their jawbone, we will cut out the cancer and cut out that section of the jawbone that has the cancer. And then we, depending on where it is, we can take a piece of bone from your fibula and your leg and then reconstruct that. So we take your fibula and we put it into your jawbone to connect the two uh, sections that now are like not disjointed. And then we stitch the blood vessel, the artery and vein from that's attached to your fibula, supplying that bone to the artery and vein in your neck. So your facial, usually your facial vein and artery, um, and then put a plate over top of it to hold that in place. So it's kind of cool. It's like you're moving tissue from one place to another um, and you're doing like microvascular reconstruction. So it's under a microscope and it's very, very fine technical surgery. Um, and so that's like one, that's like one example of what they would do. Uh, for example, with rhinology, it's specifically in the nose. So you can imagine it's like a very small area, you know, in contrast to like your abdomen. Um, so you need technical tools to help you with that. So it's what we call endoscopic surgery. So we usually use, um, a long kind of, uh, metal rod with a camera at the end. It's a fiber optic cable. Um, and we use that to go in and out of the nose to visualize on a screen. And then we use instruments specialized to operate in the nasal cavity to help us to instrument that. The spectrum of that could be from sinus surgery. So people that have like very inflammatory nasal pathology, they, we might want to like open their sinuses to allow for better drainage of their sinuses, uh, to help them breathe better, reduce the amount of inflammation, um, help with things like smell and things like that. Uh, but it also extends to oncologic pathology within the nose. And so it's kind of cool. And what I also like about ENT is that there's a lot of collaboration. So uh, one of the more common things that we do is um, combo surgery with neurosurgery, where we create a path to the base of the skull through the nose um, and then remove the bone off of the base of the nose to expose the skull base and the pituitary gland. And so for pituitary macroadenomas or other skull-based tumors, uh, neurosurgery will then resect the tumor, and then we reconstruct that area with some tissue. 
and yeah so like it's it's kind of cool because it has a spectrum of like more inflammatory type stuff as well as more like invasive neurosurgical stuff because obviously the nose is a great way to get to the brain without like lifting off a skull um, piece uh, so that's that otology um, has a huge spectrum of stuff uh, but it basically is more fine surgery as you can imagine like the ossicles within your ear or the smallest bones in your body uh, so it's usually mainly under the microscope, sometimes with the endoscope, with the, the camera on the telescope. Um, and some of that surgery can be like patients that have ruptured eardrums. We can repair that or it can extend to, as I mentioned, like cochlear implantation. So if they have sensory neuro hearing loss, they can't hear properly and it's um, a deficit of that structure, we can actually drill through the back of the ear down towards the inner ear structures, see where that what we call the round window is, which enters into the cochlea, make a little hole and then pass an electrode through that hole. Laryngology deals with anything with the voice, uh, the vocal cords, or kind of anything in that general structure. Um, so some of the pathologies that patients might have is if they have like a vocal cord paralysis, um, they might have like a breathy voice, so they might like whisper like this when they're talking. Um, and that can be pretty detrimental to people. Like you can imagine, let's say you're a singer and you have a vocal cord paralysis, you can't be a singer anymore, right? So, so yeah, it's pretty cool. So that's that. And then uh, the last field, I don't think I'm missing anything, but the last field would be facial plastic surgery. Um, so that's a combination of like reconstructive surgery as well as aesthetic surgery. Um, so there's a little bit of crossover overlap between plastics and us on that, but that can include things like uh, septoplasties, rhinoplasties, septorhinoplasties, um, where you're fixing nose stuff that can be related to like skin cancer of the head and neck and local flap reconstruction, which basically means like if you take out a big chunk and you can't just put the two skin edges together with some sutures, you can move skin from other areas around on what we call a pedicle or a vascular um, supply to cover that defect um, in an aesthetically pleasing way. But yeah, that's kind of a general rundown, I guess. Yeah, that was a great rundown. And I'm really like fascinated by everything I'm hearing. It just sounds so like so like exciting and cutting edge. And I kind of had a little um, moment that was very exciting when you talked about the pituitary, removing a pituitary tumor because we had our um, endocrinology weeks and we learned about that surgery. So it's really cool to hear like a bit about how it's actually done. And in terms of, so we've talked about kind of what ENT consists of medicine-wise, and I was wondering... Enjoying Metamorphosis? Check out some of our other podcasts like Women's Health Interrupted, exploring women's health issues through scientific inquiry and storytelling. Rate, review, and subscribe to UBC Medicine Learning Network podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, and your favorite podcast platform. Join our community on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at UBC MedVid. More about what ENT looks like for work environments and practice environments. And do you spend most of your time in the hospital? Could you have a clinic in the future? Can you work in rural areas and all that kind of stuff? Sure. I mean, I can give you my impression of it because I'm still pretty junior, but um, it depends on what you want to do and uh, whether you subspecialize or not. So the one cool thing to this day, I don't know how things will change in the future, but right now ENT is one of the few subspecialties of surgery that you can get a job without a fellowship. Wow. 
So even if you want to work in the community, so like, for example, in Vancouver, if you want to work in like Chilliwack as a, I don't know, general surgeon, you're still expected to have a fellowship to get a job versus ENT, you don't. And it's just a general culture, at least here in BC, which is kind of nice. So how it can look like as a generalist, I'll start off with, is that you actually spend more of your time in clinic and you usually have about one, maybe two OR days a week. And so that that clinic can involve a combination of just like, you know, medical discussions. Usually we scope as well. Sometimes it can be minor procedures or biopsies or, or FNAs or whatever you think that you might need to do for the patient. Um, so it's a, a little bit variable. And then your operating days would be like full. You're in the hospital from, you know, 7.30 to 4 or whatever it is doing your cases that you've booked. Uh, that's generally the, the rundown. And then depending on where you are and how many people are there, you could be on call like could range from like one in four to like one in seven or whatever it is. Now, if you do subspecialty and you want to work in an academic center, it's a little bit different in the sense that you tend to operate more. So you maybe have three, maybe even four OR days a week, and then you have one to two days of clinic per week. Um, There's more academic obligations, so research, teaching residents, but then you're only doing your subspecialty. So if you are a head and neck surgeon, you're not doing rhinology. You're just doing head and neck surgery. And in contrast, as a generalist, yeah, you're not doing like the pituitary resections with the neurosurgeon, but you will do a little bit of rhinology, a little bit of head and neck, a little bit of autology. Like you kind of do a little bit of everything uh, as a true generalist would. So that's kind of the general split, but more than not, you tend to do a little bit more clinic than surgery in like the community setting. Interesting. I didn't know that ENT was so flexible. So it sounds like it kind of can become whatever you would like to do and following your interests within ENT. So we've talked a lot about ENT so far. And now I kind of wanted to ask about your other passions. So when we talked before, you talked about innovation and you also talked about global health. So I was wondering if you could tell me about those two other passions that you have. Sure. Yeah, I can um, maybe start with the innovation stuff. It's always been something that's been on the back of my mind. Uh, I grew up in a family of engineers. And so our conversations at the dinner table were always about like this new technology that's coming out or that new technology that's coming out. And so when I got into medical school, I was always kind of just like looking around and seeing like, how do we do things and why do we do it that way? But yeah, so I I had these ideas and there was a lot of things going on. Really where it solidified for me was there was this uh, competition that was happening every year uh, that was host. It was created by two medical students, um, but it was hosted at UBC and it was called Hatching Health. And so every year they would basically have the Faculty of Medicine, the Faculty of Engineering. Uh, They would invite like Emily Carr and BCIT and like all these other kind of collaborative um, groups to this event hosted at UBC and it would be like a weekend hackathon basically. And so for people that don't know what a hackathon is, it's, you know, you're, you're given a, an issue or a problem or you create a problem and you have to design a solution to solve that problem. It's basically over a weekend. The difference with a health hackathon was that you were allowed to create your own health problem that you want to address. You form your team based on people that are interested in that and then you design your solution. And so for me, I went into it because I was like, I've always wanted to do it, but it just always had conflicts with other events in med school. And so I was in my last year and I was like, I can't graduate without doing this. 
and I didn't really have an idea, but when I went there, like everybody's talking about this software idea, that software idea. And I ended up networking with this mechanical engineering student. And she was saying that she's like, you know, I have a background in hardware um, and I'm not really keen on all these software ideas. And so I pitched her this random thing that popped into my head from when I was doing my clerkship rotations um, in orthopedic trauma here at VGH, where to fix a broken wrist, I had to run around the emergency department and get things like a ceiling bag, a rope, an IV pole, finger traps, like all this stuff and like put this kind of contraption together to help create counter traction and traction on a patient's broken wrist to help to spread the bones and relax the tendons and allowing us to reset the bone and then cast it. And even when we do that, we would cast it, they would go for an x-ray and then it would come back and it wouldn't be set properly. So then we'd break the cast and then we'd redo the whole process. And to me, I'm like, this is insane. Like, how is it that I have to literally build this thing every time out of just random stuff in the emergency department in this day and age? Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just crazy to me. And so I pitched this idea and I was like, do you think you could make like a mechanized version of this? And she was like, yeah, 100%. She's like, pitch it tomorrow. I will join your team. And I was like, all right, cool. So I at least have one person that's going to join my team. Um, so I pitched it. And then I ended up actually having a lot of people to the point that I had to turn people away because we had a max limit for our team. And, um, you know, we went through the process. And I think what I like about medical innovation the best is that there's this weird thing in society where people will look at doctors like they know everything when we really don't know that much about anything. And... It was really surreal to just sit there and be like, okay, I just gave them a lecture about wrist fractures for 15 minutes and then I had nothing else to contribute. They're talking about this thing and that thing and lag by design and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I don't know what these words mean, but cool, you guys do you. I will put together the PowerPoint presentation, you know? So like, it was cool for me to be like, now I'm in the background and they're kind of doing their thing. And every once in a while, I would, they would chime in and be like, hey, like, what do you think about this with this work? Um, so we ended up doing that and then we pitched it on the Sunday and we won the competition. And so we started to actually develop this into a functional idea and a functional company. And so in uh, December of 2020, we actually officially incorporated the company's called Tractus Medical. And yeah, so we, we, we started developing it. And now at this point, we actually have like a functional device. Uh, we've done cadaveric testing on it and it's like proven to be functional. We've been working with the UBC orthopedics and emergency medicine departments here and have some people interested. So it's kind of materialized into something that I never really expected it to. And it's kind of cool because it's a way for me to be in a field that I actually have no idea how it works. And you're like constantly learning. And what I really enjoy about medical innovation and entrepreneurship is that it's, it's by nature collaborative. And on top of that, it's dealing with human psychology. So like, I liked that. It was like, you know, you're kind of getting a feel about like what people think about this. How is it going to work out? And um, it's like a cool way to be involved in actually changing how medical care is given. And I, like for me, like my end goal, even if I make zero dollars on this, my goal would be that if one day I walked into an emergency department and I saw somebody use my device to fix a broken wrist instead of how they're doing it right now, that to me is like absolute success. Granted, if we make some money along the way, that's great. But that truly is like, that. that's crazy to me. And like, that's why I like it. It's like, we're, we're making things different.
Yeah. I'll be looking out for that in the future too. <laughs> Maybe one day when I'm in the emergency department, I'll, so. I'll see a device yeah. and I'll, I'll know how it was made. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's a really like awesome story and really cool to hear how like your medical knowledge is contributing to this innovation. And it's really inspiring to hear too that um, your medical knowledge is being used for creating these new devices. And I think this never crossed my mind that this is even like a possibility for medical students. So I think I'm learning today that there's so many possibilities within medicine. Wow. And also congratulations <laughs> for all of this. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, so uh, you talked a little bit to me before about how you did a master's, I believe, in epidemiology mm -hmm. and you're interested in global health. So I was wondering about that and I guess your plans moving forward with that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, my interest in global health um, kind of stemmed even before medical school. Um, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant family and, and uh, most of my family is back in India and uh, I would often go visit. And I think compared to living in Vancouver, the disparity in health is very apparent the moment you like land there. In the summer between first year and second year, I had the opportunity to go to Nepal with a team from UBC to work on a screening and diagnostic uh, program for sickle cell disease in uh, rural Nepal. Um, that's kind of where I really got an idea of what global health truly is. I think a lot of people look at like things like Doctors Without Borders, or I think there's like this cruise ship thing where they like serve people on a cruise ship can't remember what it's called now but there's a lot of these things where you like come in you do something and you leave you pat yourself on the back and you think hey i did a great job but you leave them with kind of more problems than they had before because if you think about it if i go in and i operate on somebody actually let's back up if i operate on somebody here okay let's say i do sinus surgery here i'm just giving a random example they go home i see them four weeks later i reassess them if there's a problem i see them sooner if there's not i see them again another like you know, two, three months or something. They're regularly following these patients. Now, let's say I fly into a developing country. I do that same sinus surgery and then I leave because I only had a month trip. Who's following that patient? What if they have a complication a month? Who's dealing with it? You are the specialized surgeon that's coming to do the surgery that they don't have access to. So now that patient, let's say they have a serious complication. Nobody can deal with it they may die or have a serious uh, comorbidity or, or um, de detriment to their quality of life because of what you did. Granted, you can say like, okay, well, what they had before was worse, but you know, that, that's just like comparing apples to oranges. Like, and I think that was what I initially thought about global health and where it shifted was when we went on this trip and you realized that like our goal here is not to do something good and leave. It's to create an environment in which we can do stuff and help develop programs, but it truly needs to be self-sufficient. And the way that our mentors taught us was that you succeed in your program, that at the end of the day, whatever has been achieved, if you leave and pull all of your funding, all of your resources and all the personnel, that program will still thrive. That is true success in global health. And I don't think a lot of people understand that aspect of it. Granted, there's always a rule. There's always um, a time and place for things like emergent care. But that to me was what I wanted to do. I really like your way that you put global health into once you leave, it should still 
be continuing and you can't just do something and then leave. And I think when you mentioned a lot of people are not aware of what global health is and what success means in global health, I think I'm definitely one of those people. I also just thought of like Doctors Without Borders and, and going to do like a surgery and then leaving, but that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, so that was a lot that we covered today. And I think one thing that really stood out to me is so many of your passions and how you're tying that into ENT. And I think one of the things in medical school that all of us struggle with is trying to figure out what our passions are and what we basically want to do with our life. So I was kind of wondering if you have advice for medical students trying to figure out our passions. <laughs> um Oh, that's such a tough question. I, I think that, um, let's think about this way. I, as you've, you know, highlighted over the course of this uh, interview, like I found my passion very late and it was where I never expected it to be. I think the key thing for medical students is to not put up blinders at a very early stage. Um, I myself did that and there was multiple people in my class that came in they're like I want to be an orthopedic surgeon or I want to be a neurologist or I want to be a neurosurgeon it's like that's fine but unless you have prior exposure to it so you know some people had like a mom or dad that was a physician in that field or they have a PhD in neuroscience and therefore they want to do neurology like those kind of things I understand but for those people that don't have that very very specialized training in something you don't really know what that field is until you get exposure to it. And I think that by locking yourself off to everything else, you miss out on the opportunity to maybe find something that's better suited for you, your personality and what your goals are than what you initially thought. First year and second year of medical school, to be honest, in my opinion, is like extended undergrad. If, if I mean, this doesn't count for the programs that are three years, but like in a traditional four-year program, the preclinical years, like you're just doing courses, you're doing labs, you have exams, like it's not really medical school. Medical school starts in third year where now you're actually experiencing what the day-to-day -day life of this is. And so a lot of people, and I fell into this trap where you start doing something and you are like, I have to like this. So for example, for me, I was like, I have to love surgery. I can't do anything else. I have to love surgery. So those like 5.30 in the morning days, you're coming back home at like 7 p.m. You haven't seen daylight, like all those things. Like you're like, but it's okay because I love surgery. And it's like, well, no, I mean, you may not. You may still like it. I mean, I love it, but like that may not be the case for everybody. And I think it's important for you to put aside those biases that you've created for yourself and just be like, what do I truly enjoy doing? all around so that's the lifestyle of it the people in the field the culture of the field the content of the medicine or surgery that you're doing and where you want to be in your career down the road and so for me like that process really materialized later on but if you start it earlier on you're kind of a little bit better off um, so things like talking to residents or staff about their fields um, which this podcast is obviously a great opportunity for that um, shadowing as much as you can now that you guys are able to shadow again um reading about these fields like what they do and also kind of taking a stock of yourself and i think like that's also important to take stock what do you want your life to look like down the road what careers facilitate that what has flexibility what does not have flexibility do you like working with your hands do you not like working with your hands do you like that like tangible distinct outcome that i described or do you like to have that longitudinal kind of discussion around patient care over a long period of time 
I think like if you kind of take stock of who you are as a person, then there's kind of a natural trend towards certain specialties. Um, but if you lock yourself in, you're never going to get that opportunity. So kind of a very fluffy answer, but like that's, that's how, that's the advice I would give. I think if I looked back on my medical school. No, I think that's great advice and not fluffy advice. I think it's such great advice to, it sounds like reflect on yourself and figure out your values and what brings you fulfillment. So yeah, that was great. And I think a question that came up when I was listening to you is as a medical student, we're, we're kind of thinking about surgery in general. Am I someone who wants to do procedures and work with my hands and do surgery? But in clerkship, there's not too many surgical rotations you get to do. So how did you figure out which one of the surgical specialties or which two or three that you were interested in out of the many surgical specialties? Um, yeah, so like I, I got exposure to orthopedics in undergrad just because of my background. So like I kind of had an idea of what that field was. Um, regarding the other ones, it was, you know, some of them do have a presence in undergrad, uh, or sorry, not undergrad medical school, like general surgery, for example, like you guys do a general surgery rotation and you get like lectures on acute abdomen or something like that, right? So there are certain fields that you will get exposure to. I remember they did like urology and things like that in undergrad or med school. So on top of that though, I think what is helpful is honestly just to like talk to these people. Like vascular surgery for me when I was talking about being interested in it I literally just like googled who the department head was of vascular surgery and then sent him an email and said I'm a UBC medical student I'm in my second year like transition to third year um, I don't know much about vascular surgery but I'm interested in the field can I talk to you most people are really nice and they're like yeah 100% and so we just like met for coffee and I was like this is what I know about vascular surgery can you educate me like what else do you guys do he walked me through it and then he like invited me to come shadow him in the OR one day. Um, and so I kind of got a little bit more and more and, and I did that with a couple of uh, specialties. And so to me, that was a way to like see the other ones. Um, but on top of that, I think it is hard. Like there's a lot of subspecialties that you can't get exposure to. So like for me, ENT was not one that I got exposure to. Um, but in retrospect, I think like you have the opportunity at events that are organized through UBC Medicine, as I imagine at other medical schools as well, like where you can meet these subspecialty programs. Like I was just at careers night like a couple weeks ago where we all had a table and like, you know, as a first year, second year medical student, like if you don't know what something is, go up and talk to them. Like a lot of people towards the end of the night, like the second years or first years come up to us and they're like, I don't know what ENT is. And I was like, great, let's talk about it, right? Like. I think that you have these opportunities to get a little bit more exposure to surgical subspecialties and everybody, like if anybody asks me, like, why do you want to do ENT? What is ENT? Like, I'll be happy to talk about it. Like, nobody's going to say, no, I don't have time for you. It might be like two weeks later because they're on call, like, or whatever, but you know, you can still get that chance. I think it's, if you're interested in learning about it, just make the time for it. Um, and people will, you'll be surprised how willing people will be to talk to you. Um, Oh, that's great to hear. I think I definitely relate to like sometimes being worried or hesitant or even afraid of just emailing people. So yeah, hearing how you emailed people and they were so happy to talk to you is great and definitely will motivate me and probably people listening to this to do the same thing. Another question that we, we've kind of discussed intermittently here and there is 
what you love about ENT and also maybe some of the challenges or things that someone interested in ENT should be aware about. Okay, sure. So I think that when it comes to challenges, I will speak generally with um, surgery as a whole first, but I think surgical residency is probably one of the most challenging residencies to do. Um, Because if you think about it, on a daily basis, we manage patients in clinic, patients in the emergency department that come into consults, patients on the ward, anywhere that need a consult, plus our own ward patients and the operating room. And no other discipline has to do that. And so you're kind of being pulled in like 15 different places at once. And so it can be a little bit taxing. So physically taxing, uh, you know, because OR usually starts at 7.30 and we need to check the patient in a little bit earlier, but we have to round before OR, we end up, you know, meeting around like, for us in ENT is actually reasonable compared to other specialties, but like 6, 6.15 or something like that, you know? Um, and then we round and then we go to the OR and then, you know, you, you do the OR stuff, answer consults, deal with patients or whatever on the ward. Um, so it can be a little bit of a long day because let's say OR finishes at four, but you've got three consults to still see you might be there till six o'clock, right? So then you end up working these 12 hour days. Then if you're on call, then you're like, you know, you're on call for us here in uh, UBC for ENT, we do citywide call, meaning that we cover VGH, St. Paul's and BC Children's on call. Um, so you could be driving around the city in the middle of the night. Um, so it can be taxing in that sense because we'll do that. And then we work the next day. If you have not slept a wink, most of the times our seniors are very reasonable and our staff are very reasonable and they'll say you can go home. But for the most part, we end up working the next day. So now let's say you got four hours of sleep and then you have another 12 hour day and then you come back home. You're kind of tired. Like uh, I was on call one and two this past week and like I was on the Saturday. I was like, yeah, I'm like going to go wake up early. I'm going to work out. And I literally just like woke up at noon because my body was physically just exhausted, you know. So I, I think those are the challenges. Um, you find that you are not able to do everything that you thought you were able to do. And I think it's a little bit frustrating to yourself when you can't do those things. Um, so I think that's something that like I wasn't aware of until I became a resident. That being said, it's manageable and you have a team. So like you can always delegate and people are always willing to help you out. Um, so like that way is good. But th- those were the little things that like I wasn't really aware of. I didn't realize how tired I would be. Um, but that kind of comes back to what I said before. Like, you know, because you're overworked to some extent, it's very, very important then to be uh, cognizant of like what keeps you grounded and still make time for that. Uh, when you need to and take your days when you need to to just do nothing I think like I have this anxiety always where it's like a day off and you're like I've got to do 15 different things I have to do all of them and then if I don't do one of them or three of them then I am like disappointed in myself but like sometimes you just need a day where you sit on the couch and watch a movie you know and that's okay because then you'll be better the next day Um, and so with that in mind I think surgical residency is hard because of that pressure that constant pressure of like being pulled in 50 different directions at one time yeah for sure and thanks for the reminder again to be okay with having to take a break and taking care of ourselves it's so important for us to hear so it's really nice to hear you as a resident kind of telling us to do that early on and definitely surgical residency does sound very tough and thank you for being very like transparent with what it's like that being said though 
I don't want people to think listen to this podcast and be like, I never want to do surgery ever again. It's it's your personality. Um, I, you know, it is busy because you're in 50 different directions at once, but I'm never bored during my day. I find it exciting because there's always something to do and I'm always moving. So even though I'm there at six o'clock when I leave the hospital, I'm like, oh my God, it's six o'clock. Like this day blew by. It's like more of that constant kind of you have something you need to accomplish and you feel like you're doing things over the course of the day that when the day goes by fast, you actually don't mind it at all. And so I personally enjoy that. But that comes down to a personality type. And so if you ask any surgical resident, they'll describe probably the same idea um, because you feel at the end of the day when I walk out of the hospital, I'm like, I accomplished something today. Um, I felt like I did something today and it feels good. And then the next day you're like recharged to go back to do the same thing again. And so I enjoy that aspect of it, even though it may seem busy and crazy and chaotic that you're like, oh my God, I have to see this patient in the OR. I have to go do this in the eMERGE or whatever. A, you have a team to delegate to help you out and B, you feel like you're done. Like I've done this, 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 and this today. That was great. And then you leave, you know, so I like it. Mm-hmm. That yeah, definitely sounds very rewarding and it's great to hear that despite the hardships that you find a lot of fulfillment and enjoyment in the work that you do so I think it's very it's a very positive thing to hear as a medical student because I think all of us share the same worries about being tired or getting exhausted which it sounds like does happen but on the other hand you enjoy your work and I think that's so important and something I hope we can all find one day. I think that brings us to near the end of our interview. So I was wondering if there's anything else you wanted to mention or bring up that we haven't talked about. I think um, the only thing I'll put in as a plug is I think that surgery as a general field gets a bad reputation in medical school for being the worst block of your clerkship because of what I just described. And I don't think that's fair. Um, because the difference with the field as a whole is that nobody is holding your hand. I think there's a lot of clerkship rotations you'll go through, and I experienced this, where somebody's always like, oh, Maya, you haven't had lunch yet? You should go eat lunch. Come back in an hour, you know? Um, And that's fine, and that's just the nature of the rotation. It's like a relatively more slower pace, so they can afford that. If you're imagining your resident doing all of these things that I just described, the good residents will keep a mind out for their medical students running around with them. But it's also your own health and your own responsibility. And I never expect my medical students, they're not there for service. They truly aren't. Even though it may seem like it, you're not there for service. You're there for learning. And so when I ask you to go see a consult, it's not because I'm like, oh, like I just need this done. So I'm going to go send the medical student. Because honestly, like I was saying before, like sometimes faster for the resident to just see the consult themselves. I'm doing it for your own education and learning. And I will tend to cherry pick the ones that will be good for you. And so if you're like, hey, Abi, I have not eaten all day. I will go see this consult. I just need 15 minutes to go grab something to eat. I'm never going to be mad at you. And I don't think any other surgical resident will because we're never a we're never sending you to see like an acutely sick patient that needs to be seen right away they're always pre-screened by us and b it's like yeah 15 minutes is fine i will do the same thing like you may think i disappear and i'm going to do something sometimes it's just like running to the calf destroying a sandwich and then running to go see a consult right 
Um, and you're allowed to do that. And I think that knowing that going into surgical rotation, just take ownership of your own health. Like don't expect somebody to tell you where to go, tell you when to do what, tell you when to go to the washroom, tell you when to eat. Like just be a little bit assertive in the sense of you're like, hey, like it's between OR cases. Uh, I'm just going to go grab something to eat. I'll be like, cool, awesome. Come back in 20 minutes. Done. Even if you showed up late to the OR, I don't really care because you're not doing much from the operation perspective. You're just there to learn. So if you come in 30 minutes later and you scrub in afterwards, I won't really care. And so I, I think knowing that going into a surgical rotation will give you a better idea of what actually the field is and not these preconceived uh, biases that people will tell you that it's horrible, you don't sleep at all, like you don't do anything. Like I think if you just go into this deep, dark path where you're like, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks, I hate this, and I'm going to do this for 12 weeks, then you're going to be miserable. And that's the same for any rotation. I just feel surgery, particularly medical students, tend to find they don't like it because of that. And I, that's my only last piece of advice. I think that's great advice to hear so we know what to expect when we do go in and yeah, I think being aware of that, like you said, is so important so that that's not the reason that you don't consider surgery. All of the advice you've given today has been great. And at least for me personally, it gives me a, a really good and realistic view of, of clerkship and ENT. So I just want to finish off by saying thank you. And I hope that people listening to this got to learn a lot about ENT and were also inspired by listening to your story. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. If I inspire one person to do ENT, I feel like I did my job. I'm sure you will. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very welcome. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 